as we come now to God's Word. If you'd like to read along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 1. That's Philippians in chapter 1. If you're reading out of the Pew Bible, it's a slightly different translation than I'm reading out of, but it's essentially the same. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things in your word? We know that we are sojourners on the earth. Do not hide your commandments from us. Would you help us now by your spirit to see and to believe? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Philippians in chapter 1. We'll start in verse 27 and read through to the end of the chapter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Now, we have finally reached the end of chapter one. It's only taken us two months to get here. Uh, If you've been here with us uh, uh, during that time at this pace, we'll reach the end of Philippians by the fall, I hope. Uh, We know that the letter uh, to the Philippians is one of Paul's shorter letters. So if we were to read this all at one time, it would take us 10 minutes, uh, shorter than even a sermon. And I, I would actually encourage you to do that on your own as you read the scriptures, to read in bigger bites, not just devotional clips. Uh, This will help us to get the fuller picture of what God is doing in his true word. Um, And it's not too hard to get. In fact, Philippians is one of the easier ones. It's not uh, overly doctrinal, at least overtly so. There were a group of us who gathered uh, several months ago uh, to talk about this, and before, in preparation for that discussion, uh, several people had read through the book multiple times and to bring their thoughts, and, and a few people said, it felt like Philippians was almost too easy, that uh, one person said, I, I think I got this, actually. And, and this is true. We know uh, Paul here in the letter to the Philippians is writing to his, his friends to encourage their faith in God. And so it's easy to read, especially this one, and really get what he says. Now, 
for the same reason, we don't want to rush through this. If you've ever been given a, a sweet letter from a friend, maybe for a birthday or an anniversary or just, a, you know, I'm thinking of you. And if you're the kind of person that saves those things and you tuck them into a box or they get, you know, in a drawer somewhere and, and you run across it again later and you pull it back out and, and you read over it again, you often slow down in that read. Not because it's hard to understand the letter, but because you really want to be present with it. Soak in what the person is saying to you. So that's what we're doing here. We know that this letter is written by Paul, but it's also written by God. It's his word, and so we want to really listen to every word and let it soak into us. In the section right before this, if you were here with us last week, uh, we heard Paul talk about uh, how he was in prison, likely under house arrest, likely in Rome. And, And in that section, he's ruminating, contemplating, really chewing on his own life and death. And even though he says he's hard pressed between life and death, that he's in a sense squeezed between those two, he says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, to have more Christ. And so either way, there will be Christ. And so he doesn't need to be afraid. Now, in this section, Paul takes a pivot. So before he had been looking inward, turning his attention to himself for a bit, and now he focuses on the Philippians. And so he's talked about the impact of the gospel on his own life, and now he's talking about the impact of the gospel on their lives. And what he gives us here is what's called an, an exhortation. Uh, it's not a command. That's not quite right. A command is, you better do this or else. It's the kind of thing a parent does to kids. And it's not quite on the flip side, just a recommendation. You can sort of take it or leave it. Paul here is strongly urging us to do something. He's saying, this is really vital for you. I need you to get this because this is how you are called to live as followers of Jesus. This is God's purpose for you. This is God's will for your life. Whether you're young or old, whether you're at work or school or home, whether you're a farmer, doctor, preacher, teacher, Mom, Dad, this is your life's calling. So let's look at what he says. He starts in verse 27 with the word only. He's going to boil down all of the Christian life to only this, just one thing. And what does he say? Only... Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but a sentence like that makes me stop in my tracks and feel the weight of it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So then we need to know what 
What does that mean? This word that in my Bible is translated, let your manner of life, in the Greek in which Paul was writing is actually one word. And the sense of that word uh, is let your citizenship. He's talking about their citizenship there. So Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, if you were born in Philippi, you were considered a Roman citizen. And so the citizenship, a Roman citizenship came, of course, with uh, privileges and responsibilities. That if you're a Roman citizen, uh, you have the right to vote in assemblies. You can own property. You have the right to a court trial, which is actually likely what's happening for Paul as he's writing this letter that he's awaiting his court trial as a Roman citizen. But also with those privileges come civic responsibilities that you have to pay your taxes. You need to follow the law of the land, and you're to be subject to Caesar. That's what it meant to be a citizen of Rome for the Philippians. Now, I think he means something different than just Roman citizenship because he talks about this idea later in the letter in chapter 3. Where is it? Philippians chapter 3. Starting in verse, well, I'll pick up in 18. Verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their glory and the glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship there's that word, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says here that for Christians, we are, we are being transformed by Christ in our primary citizenship is a heavenly one. So they are not mainly Roman. They are not mainly Philippian. They are not mainly American. They are firstly heavenly citizens. Now, Roman, Philippian, American, what have you, we are still, of course, part of these in some sense. We still live in Rome or Philippi or America, and we want to work and pray for the good of these places. Uh, we even, uh, especially on this weekend, probably hang flags outside of our houses or maybe wear them and other things that's part of us. However, we as Christians relate to these things differently because we have a different citizenship. The author of Hebrews uh, fleshes this out a bit for us in Hebrews chapter 11. So the author here is, this is talking about many people of faith, and in this section, uh, the author's writing about the family of Abraham who were called out of one country and into another in what God called the promised land, and he's making a parallel here in Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 13. The writer says this, these... So Abraham and the others, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them 
and, and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak like this make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Here's what's going on here. This people of God are looking forward to this better country, this heavenly city, and that becomes their new homeland. So on the earth as it is, they are living, as the writer says, strangers and exiles, even in their own homes. But when we pledge allegiance to Jesus, we move into a new kingdom. We are firstly part of the kingdom of God. So it's not quite right to describe our citizenship as heavenly ones and, in our context, Americans, as dual citizenship. That's not quite right. We are firstly, primarily, citizens of heaven, and we live here on, if I can say it, a green card. Or maybe it's better to describe it as a work visa. But our primary citizenship is in heaven. So you'll notice that Paul talks about this citizenship in Philippians. He says, I don't, he doesn't say, I, I want you to try to become citizens of this heavenly place. He says, for a Christian, that's already accomplished. That's already done. We're now talking about something later. And nor does he say, wait until you get to heaven to be a citizen. He says, no, no, you are citizens now. So then he says, let your citizenship, your current heavenly citizenship, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, I want you to behave in a way that's fitting or suitable to Christ's kingdom. I want you to embody this new homeland. So if we met a citizen from the emerald city of Oz, we might expect that person we might expect certain things from them, that they might look different, they might act different. If we met a citizen from Wakanda or, or uh, Narnia or Gotham City, we might expect certain things from those people because of where they're from. And, it, and if we met a citizen from the kingdom of heaven, we might expect certain things from them as well. So now he says, let your heavenly citizenship be worthy of this. And that's the one that makes me kind of freeze a bit. And we need to know what does that look like? What does it really mean for us as Christians to live as worthy citizens? If this is God's call on us, we need to know. Now, broadly... Uh, to live as worthy, worthy citizens, uh, the tangible expression of that is basically living out the first and greatest commandment. That if I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, that my life would actually change. That I would grow to love what God loves. That I would grow to pursue what God pursues. That I would want to live as Christ lives. That 
as citizens, we would be conformed to the king. So this is a summary, the worthy citizenship of the whole Bible, really, that a God in love and in glory created all things, and he is the king of the universe. And then he sets up mankind as his uh, reigning kings over the earth in his image. But then man abuses that power, sins and rebels against God for his own gain and his own way, and sinks all of mankind and all of creation under the destruction of sin and death. And so Christ, then the King of Kings, the one who is the fullness of holiness and justice and mercy and truth, then reclaims that power over sin and death by his own death and resurrection. And then Christ conforms all believers to himself so that we would reign again as citizens of a new heaven and a new earth. This is the gospel. That's the good news. And as Paul unrolls what it looks like to live as a worthy citizen of this heavenly city, there's lots Paul could say about that. And lots he probably did say more than just this to the Philippians. But here he mentions just a few specific things. And in the second half of our time, it will help us to look at what specific things he mentions about living worthily in this section. Uh, He talks quite a lot about their oneness. That you're to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. And this idea is carried into the next section, so we'll save that for next week. But in verse 29, he gives us two things that are really part of our worthy living that we really need to look at. Verse 29, he says this. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only, one, believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He says these things are granted to you. Literally, he's th- those things are a grace to you. His faith and suffering are gifts from Christ to you, and these are part of your living as worthy citizens of Christ, as he calls us. So let's look just briefly at each of those. Look first then at belief and faith. In 27, he talks about that they're fighting or striving side by side for the faith. That faith is something to be struggled for, that we have to work and fight for it. And sometimes we treat faith as culture treats love. That faith is something that you can kind of fall into, just like you fall into love and fall out of, just like you fall out of love. That, and faith, we're some sort of like passive recipient. It's just something that happens to us and we just kind of ride the wave. Faith, belief, does not just fall into our lap. It is not like a motorcycle just parked in our driveway. It's closer to compare faith to a horse in our barn that it needs to be fed, that faith needs to be groomed, that faith needs to be bridled even at times, because it's prone to be spooked or afraid of opponents. 
over the years, many uh, have come to me worried that they don't have faith, afraid that they don't have enough, afraid that they don't have faith at all, and wrestling then with the questions of that. But we have to ask, have you sought faith? Have you really pursued faith? Have you, have you fed and cared for faith? Have you asked for help in faith? Have you cried out to Jesus again and again, Lord, help my unbelief? We know that Jesus, of course, makes faith. He's the originator of faith, and he is the one, of course, that keeps it secure. It is in his hands, so do not worry. But don't let that make you lax. But let that fact actually drive you to strengthen your determination to hold on and to fight for faith. If someone came into your barn and tried to take your horse, wouldn't you fight to grab the reins again? How much more vital when it comes to faith? Paul calls us here to strive for this, and he says, Christ has granted, gifted this to you as citizens of heaven to believe in him, so hold on to that. There's one part for us. To live as worthy citizens means faith or belief. But he says here that it has also been granted to you to suffer for his sake. I would have preferred if he just left the first one and not talked about the second one, but that's common for, for all of, of the disciples of Jesus. In fact, in Acts, we see this very strange... Um, Recording in Acts chapter 5, after the apostles had gone on trial and other things, they'd uh, been punished. Uh, Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 40, picking up in the middle of the sentence, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The apostles celebrated this, that they were counted worthy to suffer. That sounds odd to us, even masochistic in some way. Uh, who, who wants to suffer like this? But the emphasis of Paul in Philippians and of the apostles here is not on the suffering itself, it's on the worthiness of suffering, the honor of suffering. Uh, one writer I think is helpful to us in this, Gordon Fee, wrote this about the section of Philippians, especially about suffering. He said, people who reflect an attitude that suggests, oh boy, I get to suffer for Jesus, cause most of us to squirm. Somehow, they haven't got it quite right. And they surely can't appeal to Paul for such an attitude. Paul's attitude toward Christian suffering is altogether theological and Christocentric at its core. It's based on Christ's teaching on discipleship, 
that servants are to be like their master. In other words, and this is not about the suffering itself, but it's really about following Jesus. That we submit to suffering when necessary for the sake of Christ. And that the grace of heavenly citizenship We don't submit to suffering because we like the pain, but because we like Jesus. And because we want to be more like Jesus, even to share in his suffering. So we choose to draw closer to Christ, even over our physical well-being at the moment. These two things, then, are a gift of Christ to us, faith and suffering. Now, this leaves us with one final question. Why these? Why these two? How are these things, belief or faith and suffering, particularly related to living worthily as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus? Paul doesn't directly tell us, so this requires a bit of thought on our part, but I think we can get there. Uh, Something that will help us answer this question, how are these two things related to living worthily as citizens And when we go to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? Now, this is a very old book, Pilgrim's Progress from the 1600s. So if you ever try to read it, some of the language, fair warning, is a little old. But it's a story. It's an allegory about this main Christian, or main character whose name is Christian. They all have these names like this, Christian, faithful, hopeful, and others. So the main character, Christian, is made by Jesus a citizen of a new kingdom. And so in Pilgrim's Progress, the story is that he's left the city of destruction And he's on this journey to the celestial city. And so in this process, he meets lots of people, giants and other things. And and, and in the journey, he's joined at some point by a companion, a guy that comes along with him named Faithful. And so Christian and Faithful are now on their way to the celestial city, and their journey takes them through the city of Vanity Fair. And all the streets of this city of Vanity Fair are named after all the kingdoms and countries of the world. So there would be an America street in Vanity Fair. And and in all of these streets, they're lined with merchandise that the vendors are selling these glittering things. They're selling gold and precious stones. They're selling land. They're even selling honor and titles. They sell servants, they sell women, they sell blood. They sell all the pleasures you could ever want in Vanity Fair. And so Christian and faithful know that this will cause trouble for them, but they have to pass through it, so they just sort of turn up their collars and try to make it through. But because they're citizens of a different country, they stick out. And the other people notice three things about them, John Bunyan says. One is that their clothes were different. They're wearing something given to them by the shining ones when they met the foot, Jesus at the foot of the cross. 
So their clothes are different, something that Vanity Fair does not sell. And their speech is different, that they talk in a different way. They're talking about different things. But the thing that the people notice most about Christian and faithful that are different about them is that their cares are different. That they don't seem to want what is being sold. That they don't stop to shop and to peruse the merchandise. They even actually purposefully turn their eyes away or upward toward heaven. But as they're traveling through with their collars up and their eyes kind of turned away, down, upward, all the vendors are calling out to them as they walk through Vanity Fair, what will you buy? What will you buy? Come buy, come buy, buy mine. What will you buy? And Christian and faithful finally respond, we buy the truth. Now that causes a problem for them. They get mocked and eventually a riot happens so that they're beaten and smeared with dirt and put in prison. And they're left there for a while as sort of a spectacle. But eventually they do get a trial. There's a judge in Vanity Fair called Lord Hategood. And so they come before Lord Hategood and the jury of all these awful people and there's all these uh, slander and, and half-truths told about them. And at the end of their trial, both Christian and faithful are condemned. And faithful is burned at the stake. And Christian watches his friend die. And in one of the loveliest scenes in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian watches as Faithful breathes his last breath as a chariot sweeps down through the clouds, through the crowd of Vanity Fair, and scoops up Faithful and takes him directly to the gates of the celestial city. And John Bunyan says, he got there first before Christian did. And as lovely as that is, Christian eventually is put back in prison and then is released. So he leaves Vanity Fair, but now without his friend. And you would think that he would have to carry on his Christian journey alone, but that's not the case. This happens. John Bunyan says this, Now I saw in my dream that Christian went forth not alone, for there was one whose name was Hopeful, being made hopeful by beholding of Christian and faithful in their words and behavior and in their sufferings at the fair. And Hopeful joined himself to Christian, and entering into a brotherly covenant, he told him that he would be his companion. Thus, one died to bear testimony to the truth, and another rises out of his ashes to be a companion with Christian in his pilgrimage. We've asked the question, how is faith and suffering particularly related to living as worthy citizens of the kingdom of Christ? And I think the answer to that is that these two, faith and suffering, particularly display the supreme worth of that kingdom. 
that when we put complete faith in something, even being willing to suffer or die for that thing, it shows the immense value of the thing. And so for all of the glitz and glamour and sex appeal of all the treasures of Vanity Fair, this man, hopeful, sees that that's just not worth it. But as he watches these two pilgrims go through, these simple men who just have real faith and a willingness to suffer for that faith, he sees somehow that they have something worth infinitely more. He sees in them the great beauty of Jesus, that to be citizens of their country would be a prize far better than anything he knows at Vanity Fair. And so Hopeful leaves his hometown of Vanity Fair and goes with Christian to the celestial city. Now, Paul is urging the same thing for us. He says, Christians, pilgrims, strangers and exiles on the earth, by the grace and power of Jesus, only live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is your life. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, thank you for these graces of faith and suffering. Would you help us in the midst of these to display your worth? Would you help us to see your worth so that we might live as citizens worthy of your gospel? We ask for your grace and power in this. In Jesus' name, amen.